0: Welcome to this moment in democracy. I'm Saladin Ambar. This episode was recorded on February 7th, 2023. Today, I'm speaking with Arun Chowdhury. Arun is a political operative and filmmaker. After serving on President Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, he was asked to become the first official videographer of the White House, a position he held from 2009 to 2011. He later served as creative director for Senator Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign. Currently, Arun lives in Berlin, working on counter-messaging the far right. Arun, it's great to have you here with us. Thank you for joining this moment in democracy. Oh, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. It's my pleasure. And listen, I'd be remiss, uh, given that you're in Berlin at the moment, I understand you have some travels uh, that you're um, uh, looking forward to. Always, uh, yeah. For sure. Um, I understand Berlin also has a very large Turkish community. Is that right?
1: Yes, that is the case.
0: I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask if you have a sense of how that community is handling uh, uh, the very real crisis, uh, and I know this is not part of our uh, conversation, schedule conversation, but given that uh, there's been an earthquake of major consequence in Turkey and Syria, I thought uh, I'd ask uh, what perspective you're feeling in Berlin with such a large Turkish uh, population.
1: Yeah, and it's funny because it is uh, a a community that has thrived in Germany for decades and decades and decades, right? So it's a situation where, you know, you have a cab driver and he's Turkish and he's second generation German, etc. Uh, and so there are a lot of kind of mixed feelings about background and identity and all of that goes out the window uh, when people are in trouble because there's an, er- right. a, 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 an earthquake back home. And so you really saw people snap into action in the community and also harness people around Berlin, which is a very uh, diverse place. But that can't but that is sort of willing to take up arms with communities that reside inside it. You saw the same thing with Ukrainian refugees who were coming in. You know, unlike a lot of places, places in Germany or in Europe where there was a lot of bureaucracy that may have gotten in the way, Berlin was an incredibly uh, embracing place and made it happen. And I think you're seeing that with relief efforts going uh, towards Turkey and towards Syria, where it's much harder to know how to give back. And Berlin is one of those places where when people do want to get money to people who they trust uh, back home, they know how to do that from here.
0: Well, I appreciate you, you sharing that with us. Uh, you know, in the spirit of humanitarianism, which is what Eagleton is all about, uh, and I know you're all about giving your work and, and career. Uh, it's important for folks to have a, a sense of what's going on uh, in a community, uh, such uh, as, as the one you've described that's been thriving in Berlin for so for so long. So, thank you for sharing a little bit of that, and perhaps we can even post uh, a way for people to uh, offer contributions to that relief effort uh, globally uh, towards, uh, those suffering, uh, in, uh, yeah. Syria and uh, of yeah, course and in Turkey. So for sure. So listen, how does one, uh, you, perhaps you were in middle school one day and you said, you know, I want to be a videographer for the first, for the first black president of the United States. How, how does one <laughs> develop a career path to, towards becoming a videographer? How does, uh, uh, obviously you've done many other things, but I want to start there. Did, yeah. 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 Did you know, that even surprise yourself? Trouble, how did that yeah.
1: happen? Uh, You know, it's surprising and unsurprising, which is, I think, when I catch up with people who I knew from when I was younger, what they say, they're like, oh, it's a little weird, but it's actually not weird at all, because I was always someone who's interested both in, you know, art and performance and music and theater and film uh, and also politics And that usually kind of combined itself in making political art, you know, uh, maybe, you know, teenage, slightly didactic political art, the kind of thing that we all thrive on when we're younger. Uh, But I think it wasn't, I didn't ever think you could put those things together until I was already in college, but just leaving high school. And some of that, I have to say, was due to this was the rise of Michael Moore Uh, And Roger and Me, which was sort of this remarkable film that had done very well as an independently funded documentary. I think people forget it wasn't just that it was the sort of political subject matter. It also was revolutionary in the way it was uh, funded, presented and kind of operated. And that was the first inkling in my head that maybe this was a thing. Uh, And so I did study film, you know, academically in college at the same time as continuing to study politics and political economy and things that that mattered to me. Uh, And. Then you get lost in what movies are a very seductive, a very seductive field. You get lost in it. And you get lost in the world of achievement and film festivals. And, you know, I joke around, you know, about being in politics. Now I say, you have no idea. Politics is the least political thing. I mean, have you ever been in academia? uh, As you well know, (laughs) being at Rutgers, like that is political. Uh, The film festival world, indie film is the single most political thing that you could ever possibly imagine. Uh, But, you know, you get swept up in this kind of thing. And it wasn't until um, it wasn't until the Iraq war happened that actually, I thought to myself, uh, it, it would be important to not just make films about politics, but to involve film in politics. Because, you know, I was somebody who did think of politics as a sort of abstract thing, the parties were very similar, et cetera. Et cetera. But the war clearly defined, there was a, an objective, there was something that could stop be stopped, uh, potentially, you know, one has to say yeah. a million people in the streets didn't totally seem to stop it. But you no, can see I, right this is something I, you can dig into
0: yeah it seems like 100 years ago the iraq war but it was not that long ago mm-hmm. actually and uh you yeah, know no i re- i remember it well and uh it's interesting that that was uh, a touchstone for you in in terms of getting getting started and so uh when was the first time you heard about barack obama how how did that relationship
1: Perfect. get yeah. developed yeah, yeah you know it's perfect we're talking about 2004 uh, you know and the and the iraq war and I me mean, kind of being like maybe because i did not watch him speak in his first convention speech in 2004 you have to be particularly interested in politics uh, like the folks listening to this and the folks in the in your institute uh, to like watch the opening acts at the convention, right? If you're a person who's generally informed, you're probably gonna tune in, right? So for me, I tuned in and I saw John Kerry say, reporting for duty and give the kind of phony salute. And I was like, that guy is gonna never ever be president. (laughs) It seems like, you know, there's a major casting problem. Maybe artists need to be involved here. And I missed the fact that there was this sort of really interesting person who had made a remarkable speech that everyone who was paying attention to was incredibly struck by. Uh, The first time I saw him uh, do something was a very funny ad for the Super Bowl. Where a Super Bowl or or no, not, maybe not the Super Bowl. Yeah, you know, forgive me. I know very little about football. Uh, but it was just for NFL or something. But he had this really long thing. Like he had this announcement to make, and this was 2006, and it would have been untoward to be announcing to run for president. Right. Uh, but he was really, really hamming it up and building it up, and then he just said that he endorsed the Bears to win whatever it was that the Bears were playing in. And you had a good laugh and he does the, you know, the Obama double smile and everything's good. And I was like, well, that guy, who's that guy? You know, like, oh, that's a junior senator from, uh, you know, from uh, from Illinois. He's kind of hot stuff. Uh, And I, you know, and then it was definitely in the back of my mind. But actually joining his team was uh, just an act of randomness in some ways, because I had uh, ever since the 2004 campaign and thought how dreadful it was, I had been knocking down the doors of anyone who would listen uh, small races, mayoral races, city council races in Westchester County and Orange County and New Jersey, uh, you know, in, in y'all's neck of the woods everywhere. Uh, and everyone kind of said, yeah, that's good, but no one really wanted to put resources behind it. And it wasn't until someone who I knew, uh, who was on the Obama campaign, who was Kate Albright Hanna, uh, and knew what I was up to was like, no, 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 you got to come, you got to come to Chicago and you should meet the senator and you should join our team. and uh, and And that was it.
0: Wow, it's an incredible story, but it's important for our students to hear this because, uh, you know, everything is not so uh, neat and clean in terms of how these things uh, happen career wise. And do you remember any initial impressions of uh, Barack Obama? Uh, Anything jump out at you uh, that stood out now that you reflect on it? I mean, look, I. You all talk about this stuff all the time. And I'm going to say
1: some of these things in an incredibly flippant way. And, you know, and and we're going to have fun with it. But but every politician that you ever meet is a psychopath. They're all psychopaths. (laughs) And Barack Obama's not. And then initially Uh, strikes you incredibly, right? A huge amount of his charisma is just the fact that he is comfortable with who he is you know, a cool, smart guy, but also that he isn't one of those people and knows he's not. And that just puts him at an advantage when having to talk to people. And so I was like, whoa, who is this non-psychopathic person uh, who's running for president? You know, uh, and it it was really interesting. And then you also I had a really interesting time in my very first encounter with him because we were filming. So, you know, the Mm -hmm. authentic it's nice to meet you, Senator was 20 seconds as I was miking him up with a, a mic because then he had to go out and do a very quick bit with NBC and then do one of our Dinner with Barack events. This was the first event that I covered when I joined the campaign. And that was they invited four people from around the country who had donated you know, small dollars uh, and we made little documentaries about them. And then they all came and had dinner with him and to show kind of length and breadth of the country. And this is one of some, some of the innovative low dollar stuff we were doing, Right. People would donate thinking maybe they would be the next person to get dinner. We did this three or four times. Uh, And and I, you know, and I, and I feel like very right off the bat, got to know who he was because he sat down, uh, genuinely was like, Hey, I'm sorry, I'm late. You know, uh, it it was explaining as if he had to explain I'm late because I'm running for president and that makes you late for things, you know, but he actually explained exactly what it was. And was like, I'm really hungry. I hope, you know, we're not like pretend eating here. Uh, And then, you know, the waiter came over and he immediately started ordering food he wanted to eat, which is broccoli, salmon, no sauce, like really boring, healthy food, because that's what he likes, you know, and then you can see him, you know, and he's starting to talk to everyone, having a good time, and he's like, oh, wait a minute, I need to order unhealthy food because they're running for president, you know,
0: and then he's like, (laughs) and we should get
1: some fries, and we should get burgers, and everyone should get whatever they want, you know, but, you know, but he allows himself these moments of genuinely letting this break through, and I think almost all of the things that we remember, that we attach to, are these moments of rising out of the kind of, you know, rubber model statesman thing that we want our presidents to be.
0: Fascinating. Well, I think I, I'm old enough to remember there was a little bit of a, an arugula scandal, because yeah. uh, I think somehow his preference for arugula came, uh, came to bear during one of those campaigns. And, or, you know, maybe it was 2000. He used it as a uh,
1: as an expression for whenever we were doing something too much, you'd be like, Oh, oh, oh we don't want to go arugula on everybody on this. Well, because there, there was such a strong backlash to the arugula moment. You're right.
0: I feel like that should be patented. Uh that that's that's great. Well, you but you you know, and I could talk to you all day about your time with with Barack Obama, but I imagine that was an, um, a um a very rewarding and, and intriguing um part of your your career. Uh but you also worked with Bernie Sanders, is is yes. that not correct? So uh, maybe you could share what working on his campaign or campaigns was like, and any contrasts of note between him and uh, Barack Obama. I oh, assume I Bernie say- Sanders is not a sociopath as well, but maybe maybe we can break news here. Yeah, No, I
1: mean, he he's not a sociopath at all. Uh, He is exactly who you think he is. He's a person who is single-mindedly fixated on wealth and inequality uh, and progressive causes for the American people to a point where it's almost caricature. But I actually think both of them, that is one of the things that they share is a sort of genuineness. And although people because sort of 2016 made this split in the Democratic Party, uh, that endures strongly to this day, um, people sort of don't remember that you didn't have to shoot you, you didn't that those weren't choices that people were making during Barack Obama. Barack Obama was someone who was not running to the left of other folks. John Edwards was perhaps running to his left. There were some issues in which he and Hillary were sort of deadlocked uh, on where uh, on where they were at. You know, he, other than the war, he was not. A particularly progressive candidate, but he attracted the same exact kind of people to his campaign that Bernie Sanders did, despite the different politics, because they yeah. had this genuine sort of volunteer driven energy. And so, you know, there weren't that many of us who worked on both. The Venn diagram is quite slim, but I think that one is very much the evolution of the other and, and in a lot of positive ways. And so things you saw starting. In the Obama campaign, um, uh, allowing people to self-organize on my which was our answer to Facebook, uh, which existed then amongst the many other things. so making your own Facebook, which now sounds crazy, wasn't crazy right. Then. Um, right. Uh, but you know, allowing people to do things but only so much and, and I even sort of came uh, up, you know, in the business, I guess, because Barack Obama, of course. You know, start with the president. That's the best way to start. I would advise that to all your students as well. Uh, but, you know, uh, you know, doing it this way. Um, uh, Bernie, he is a better example, I think, of letting user generate, like you keep people at bay a bit. Bernie let users, we let people, we let them not just self-organize, we let them create, which is someone who is part of the content creation team to me was kind of a revolutionary breakthrough. And we forget now in the same way for we forget about mybo and Facebook uh, and myspace and all the things that existed, Black planet um we are uh, we also forget in in 2016. That there were many different ways and many different places that people were getting their information, getting what they wanted to be from, and that the most authentic things were never going to come from the campaign. So feel the burn was not a campaign driven thing. We were dragged kicking and screaming into it. I mean, some of us enjoyed it right away and we're like, that's cool. Uh, Mm -hmm. but this wasn't something that immediately, you know, and especially Bernie, he's like, I don't know what that is. You know, like you can imagine (laughs) sort of not knowing what to do with that. Exactly. This Uh, was user generated. Right. And finally we adopted it. And when he handed Jimmy Fallon, I think it was Jimmy Fallon, the mug that said feel the burn on it. This wasn't just a funny pop culture moment. This was Bernie sort of giving something that the grassroots had created celebrity, right? I had these mugs made. I'm taking it seriously. I'm doing this on NBC I, on a show you know I don't even want to be on because I'm Bernie Sanders. Uh, and I think it meant a lot to a lot of people. And so that was the same philosophy for a lot of the things. A lot of people making their own videos and making their own, making their own graphics, sharing things in their own ways, having entire shadow campaigns. This was uh, a natural spin-off of what Barack Obama was doing, but just sort of on steroids. And of course, fueled by the ever-changing technology that makes those things easier.
0: Well, absolutely. And, and speaking of that technology, I mean, uh, let me just put it to you directly. Do you, do you see yourself as a director? Because I do. I mean, when you, if you're a videographer of these campaigns, are, are you not directing in some way? Talk to me about your editorial choices. Um, yeah, you know, I yeah, love yeah, film yeah. and, and how do you capture or Are you conscious of capturing uh, the personality and really the, Politics of the people, uh, the, particularly Bernie or, or Barack, uh, in, in this way. Uh, of are you conscious of their politics and how to capture their politics in the manner that you're filming them? How do you see yourself in that way?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a lot. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of good questions put in there. You know, one thing I think is that you that the 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 way that I thought about it was the authenticity of these people. You know, we're talking about particularly authentic people in Obama and Bernie. So that, so that's easy is also matched by the authorship, what the person is bringing to it. And I think that's also part of the process of kind of how I did these things, this sort of fly on the wall that doesn't go, everyone knows you're there. You've got a camera and you're in the Oval Office, like, you know, you're not fooling anyone. You know, so it's like the sort of, sort of being part of it, being there, being a participant, I think makes more sense, even in the same way kind of this is sort of a documentary theory all the way back from French verite kind of stuff, but that you influence what's happening as you're shooting it. So I think anyone watching West Queen Week, which was my video diary of the White House, for instance, would know what was happening that week. According to the politics of the president, obviously, this is a controlled product, but they also know my vision of the president, which is that he's a busy, slightly funny guy. And that maybe I'm busy and slightly funny, too. And, you know, there were even people when they would write about it, they, even though I wasn't part of it, they would be, they would, you know, because my name would be on the blog and they knew I was right. a White House videographer, they would actually sort of associate things with me and personality traits with me. So I do think an important part is not being a fly in the wall, being present when you're doing things, because that's the only way you can get people in front of the camera to be genuine. And then also being genuine with the edit, you know, this kind of uh, anonymous World War II style voiceover driven documentary. You know, about like not getting gonorrhea in the Navy or whatever from 1941 is just not what's going to fly in, in an era where people are increasingly distrustful of any government authority, uh, especially kind of hokey, cringy authority.
0: You talk about, uh, and let me uh, go a little, Marion Anderson, I guess, uh, not Marion Anderson, uh, Marion Williamson on you, uh, and, and you talk about being present. Is that something that you've worked on uh, or you worked on prior to your? Uh, stance uh, or position as a videographer or is that something that you had to learn while you were on the job Uh, sort of just being in the moment capturing uh, these these important figures
1: I do think being able to sit quietly is an important part of the job you're not shooting constantly you're kind of picking and choosing but to be in the right place at the right time you may have to sit in a waiting room for like 15 hours with nobody but Pete who is an exceptionally good photographer, but is not always the best conversationalist. So I'm just going to disappoint your readers right there. You know, it's just, you know, there's only so much to talk about. Uh, so, so I did have to sort of learn on the job that it was a meditation as much as a kind of, and as much as anything else, as much as athleticism. It wasn't about being able to sort of the endurance of these long days and running. It was actually going into the same room every day and starting my day by zooming in on the president's nose and eyes, putting those in focus as every camera person out there knows. That's what you do. You get that in focus and then you zoom out uh, and then you're locked in uh, pretty much for that area and you can just start shooting. And it was hard some days because you're like, I've done this before. This feels like something that I've done before. And to sort of get into this uh, rhythm of being able to do it constantly was something that I had to learn if I could do or not. It turned out that I could do it for a certain amount of time. I mean, i would be totally candid about it. It was this repetition. I remember there was one day I like walked into work, uh, which is the White House. So it's exciting even sort of every day walking into right. work. But I walked into work and the fountain was green and then I remember that it was St. Patrick's Day and they died the fountain green and that the T shock was going to be there, which is what they call the prime minister in Ireland. And do you know how to spell T shock? And here's your sheet because he's coming. And I, you know, and it's like this sort of crazy like ritual that I had done four times in a row, you know, and then we go to the Capitol, you know, Joe Biden's going to be excited because it's Irish stuff and Joe, uh, Governor O'Malley will be there. And it's and it was John. I was like, I can't do this anymore. That was when I said, uh, the next couple of months, I'm going to figure <laughs> out how to transition out of here. I don't want to spend another St. Patrick's Day here.
0: Well, thank you for leading the witness because I was going to ask you about uh, what you're doing now and, and, and this current moment for you. Uh, so you're you're in Berlin uh, and uh, you're combating far-right messaging in Europe. Is that right? Uh, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. Not necessarily tell us about just that. in Berlin, but... Uh, well, sure, in Europe and then maybe elsewhere. But tell us uh, about yeah. far-right messaging. What's going on? Uh, what are you doing? And uh, how do you define far-right messaging? What's happening yes. out there uh, for s- folks who may or maybe might not uh, be paying attention uh, um, as closely as, as others. So, what's going on with you and far right messaging in Europe? The far right, I mean, it's a bit like pornography.
1: You can't define it exactly, but you know it when you see it. So, I think when we're talking about this moment now, we're talking about this nativist, populist, Brexity, Trumpian, Bolsonarian, Modish. Uh, thing that's happening worldwide where we see a lot of jingoistic, uh nativistic, racist, homophobic kind of foment uh coming in a big way in uh with just enough sort of economic populism to make it interesting and dangerous. And I think a lot of people are wondering, you know, where is this coming from? Where does it go? And our answer has been these kind of short-term electoral answers of, oh, now everything's normal now. Oh, Joe Biden's elected now. Oh, this has happened now. Whatever's happened now. And then we keep getting surprised when it's not over yet and when another place, when someone, when something happens and when another domino falls. And the answer is that we're not looking at it, in, I think, exactly in the right way. One of the reasons I decided to come out to Europe was that I think in America, we're very good at politics. And we spend a lot of money on politics. And so we learn a lot about politics. But politics doesn't always start in the U.S. Uh, in fact, oftentimes it starts here in Europe it, it, for specific reasons and, and goes both directions. I think there has to be a Brexit before there is a Trump. And I think it's very specific. And I think that's because you have two waves globally of what the far right manifest themselves as. One is this very traditional, very conservative father to son, passed down like a gun, you know, kind of Nixon's worst traits, Putin's worst traits, just kind of this, you know, angry dad in the suit vision of what the world should be. And then you have this cabaret, Milo, you know, fun Nazis, uh, Pepe the Frog, are we kidding? What exactly? And it's sort of, you know, I wasn't really being racist. I was just being edgy and like this sort of campy stuff. And where those things come together is Scandinavia is italy is germany is uh the balkans is a lot of these places where you have these two forces kind of swirling together into this very very sticky foment and it it really upends a lot of the rules we have in the us for instance we are so sort of set in the youth vote means a progressive turnout the youth vote means a progressive turnout uh, there's places in Europe where uh, I think things are sort of farther along what they will be in the U.S., where I am concerned that the youth are the main target for the far right. And that actually an ecological message married with a far right message, eco-fascism, which is the catchy way of saying it, uh, is going to become something that we see more and more. And in fact, we already see it happening in the wellness community, which is becoming more and more part of this cultural molecule of far right, whatever it is online, right? And that way, when you come on, someone may come on to watch something um, from on Rucker's channel on YouTube, and will end up watching a Jordan Peterson video within two, you know, clicks, all of a sudden, they're into this ecosystem of all of this message that is interwebbed is paid for by the same people and is coordinated. And in the progressive world, in the center-left world, there is not the same thing. There's Voice of America or whatever, these kind of old, tired institutions uh, that are sort of telling a story that people don't necessarily want to hear. And in elections, you have the center-left fighting elections, sometimes doing well, sometimes doing poorly. And you have the right wing telling a story all the time, and not just when there's an election. Not just when there's uh, a job on the line, which is the worst time to tell someone how you're going to help their life when sure. they're supposed to help you get a job.
0: So, given um, given the idea that uh, perhaps a, a European uh, sneeze may lead to an American cold, if um, if I'm reading you right, that a lot of what happens uh, in Europe, uh, you know, has a way of finding its way to to America uh, politically. Um, what do you suspect? the 2024 election may bring. Uh how do you feel about, you know, let's just say the near future of the United States, given what you're witnessing in Berlin and beyond?
1: I think that everything, I think, I think it's a great question. And I thank you for that question. Uh, because I think it's coming to a head in a way. Uh because of politics, ossification of the parties, whatever you want, we are almost definitely looking for something that looks like a Biden-Trump rematch. But whatever we are looking at is going to be a close election. Uh, There's nothing, there's no world catastrophe. There's sort of nothing that I can anticipate happening that will stop it from being a close election that will hinge on some things in many places. And so I think 2024, more than being a test of electoral turnout or any of these mobilization things we're used to being the process pieces, is going to be a is going to be a measure of how strong our media actually is, how much disinformation actually is in our media, how much uh, folks will be able to chant one line, because what you see in the parts of Europe where democracy is failing, and I would specifically uh, look at Hungary, I would specifically look at things that peace is trying to do in Poland, uh, but there's many other places to look at. It is when this electoral success meets this sort of lack of community, you know, and sort of builds a community that matches support by powerful people in media systems that kind of creates this uh, loop of no return or just sort of diminishing returns in terms of trying to get back to a democracy. Uh, I don't mean that to sound doom and gloom. It just shows you exactly where you need to look. I would uh, point to Slovenia, uh, the smallest nation of the EU, but in some ways a very interesting one. It was supposed to be next in line as the next Hungary. And they had Janis Janča, who was supposed to be their mm-hmm. Orban. And actually civil society came together uh, alongside electoral things and not only beat back uh, this sort of really terrible prime minister and installed you know, uh, a, a, a one who was well within the bounds of kind of normality but then as a next step, also depoliticize some of the media that had kind of been poisoned with some of just us deeply uh, corrupt uh, right-wing gestalt.
0: Sure, well, what's the Slovenian remedy? What are the ingredients in that s- civil society that we might look to, uh, to give us some, uh, some hope? Uh, what, what did they, uh, well, yeah, what are the characteristics that sort of uh, prevented yeah. that from happening? No, I
1: think it's. I think it's actually quite clear. You had a place in which you had a lot of new parties uh, meeting a lot of very powerful civil society. So the roles were reversed in a way that I think, whether or not you're in Europe where you have an actual coalition of parties who don't like each other, U.S. politics are just the same. The parties are these coalitions of smaller parties that are pushed together don't like each other, right? Like, you know, the AOC and the party does not have a lot to do with, like, that's the Harry Cellular part of the party. Like, these people are not friends. Uh, And so you're still trying to work across coalitions. And the only ways these coalitions can work is not when everyone's saying, oh, strategically, tactically, we can beat those guys if we go together. It's no, what do we all believe together? And so in Slovenia, you, you didn't have, if you wanted to be involved in this campaign, the campaign was led by civil society who made their contribution real. They actually said, this is a law we've all written. With all of our lawyers, and all the smart people who work on all these issues, it's not overreaching. It is actually a remedy to all the things that we've seen gone wrong in our democracy, right? This is actually what generally civil society says fixes this. If you want to be part of this coalition, you're not going to court us for our voters. You're actually going to come onto our platform. And okay. everyone says this is the first thing who, when you're prime minister that you'll pass. And this was effective because instead of people saying, "Oh, I don't want to be in a coalition with that party because I'm this," I would never vote for that person because I'm this. It was, it was you were not you weren't voting for those people. You could pick whatever person you wanted. It was fine. No one was angry. You just picked someone who was on the right team for sure. And so instead of it being a tactical message, it was a persuasion message. And I think there's a lesson in that.
0: Well, Arun, I, I promise you, I can speak to you all day, but as I am mindful of our time, I, I I guess I probably should find a. A coherent way to wind this down. Uh, when are you coming back to to the United States, uh, even for a little bit? And where can folks uh, find out a little bit more about what you're doing, um, either through social media or uh, writing? Where should we uh, look look
1: for you and your work? Uh, folks can follow me uh, on social media. I'm easy to find or on Jadhri, um, but Twitter is probably the best, which is a A r u n c h a u d uh, and also the, the company that I've formed now, it's really just me and, and people who help me out occasionally called committee. We used to put out a podcast that had some information on international affairs. We don't do it much, but if you want to subscribe to any of those channels, occasionally we'll put out updates about the elections, uh, that we're working on this year. Poland has some Spain has some, there should be uh, a lot of interesting things. And I myself will be back in the states. Uh, I think in California in March, and in New York in July. And I'm always looking for trouble with interesting non-incumbent candidates uh, looking to take on in uh, looking to take on challenges all over all over the U.S. Those are my favorite. Those are my favorite people.
0: Well, wonderful, Arun uh, Chowdhury, thank you so much for joining this moment in democracy. Uh, you're truly fascinating, a human being, and we're really, really grateful that you uh, took some time out from, uh, I don't even know what the time is in Germany right now, but it, it, it can't be early. So we wanna thank you for for joining us, Arun Chowdhury. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Today's podcast has been brought to you by the Eagleton Institute of Politics. Eagleton is a nonpartisan research unit of Rutgers University, New Brunswick. This moment in democracy was made possible in part by the generosity of Gerald and Kiko Harvey and Eagleton's many supporters. To support Eagleton's work or sign up for its newsletter, click the links in the description. To learn more about the Institute, visit eagleton.rutgers.edu and follow Eagleton on social media.